Luke chapter 13. As you're finding your place there this morning, I just want to welcome you. I'm glad to see you on this beautiful fall, October Sunday morning. It feels great outside today. Amen? Amen. Some of you are saying, man, it's cold, but uh, there's something about, for me, the briskness of a good fall morning. I love it so much. But I'm glad to see you here this morning. I know we have guests in the house. I was able to meet a few of you before the service began. As always, God continues to uh, bring new people to our fellowship, and we're excited about that. Hope you felt right at home as we have sung this morning, as we've sang this morning. And uh, I'd like to give you an opportunity, if you would take it, to, uh, to use that bulletin that you have and the QR code that there, that's there. If you will just scan that with your phone, there's a little website that will pop up that will give you an opportunity to share a little bit about yourself so we can follow up with you, tell you more about what's going on here at Red Lane Baptist Church. But we're glad you're here this morning to worship. Uh, just a little uh, bit of information for us as church family. Uh, this morning, one of our senior of senior adults, Miss Daisy uh, Dennis, went home to be with the Lord. And so uh, that funeral will be later this week when we get more information there. But just be praying for George and, and his kiddos, uh, kiddos that are like 60-something years old. Um, but they're still his kids. And uh, she was 89 years old. He's 93. They got married. I heard the whole story this morning. At 1950 is when they got married. So think about that. 72, 73 years of marriage. She's been battling all, or, uh, dementia for a number of years. And uh, the, today the Lord was gracious enough to take her home to be with him in heaven. So it's a day to rejoice from that standpoint. It's a day of mourning for them. So we're going to be in prayer for them this week. And we'll let you know as soon as we know details as far as that funeral later this week. So uh, Luke chapter 13 is where we're at this morning. We're going to be talking about how to be tempered. We're going to see Jesus here in this text. We're going to be looking at tempered in his response to those who are constantly trying to attack him, trying to trap him, and try to put a stop to his uh, preaching ministry. Heard about a Baptist church and a Methodist church and a Presbyterian church in a local community who decided to get together and put on a revival, a revival for that community. And so these three churches came together and, and had a wonderful uh, set of meetings where they had the word of God preached and they sang the gospel. It's just a, a wonderful time where churches came together and it was a blessing to the community. Well, after this revival took place, those three pastors of those three churches got together to kind of talk about what had taken place during those days of revival meetings. The Methodist pastor said, man, I'll tell you what, that revival worked great for us. We were able to add four new families into membership within our congregation. Well, the Baptist pastor said, I'll tell you what, it was even better than that for us. We added six new members to our congregation from that revival. Well, the Presbyterian pastor was sitting there, and he was rejoicing with his friends, with his colleagues in ministry there in the town. And, and he said this, I tell you what, we did even better than that. We got rid of 10 of our biggest troublemakers this past week. <laughs> you know, if you've been in church long enough, you've probably seen, experienced some of that, of what I'm talking about there, the joke of conflict. When you think about it, conflict is, unfortunately, a normal and a natural part of living in a fallen world. We're always going to experience conflict. It's many times the conflict that we would rather not experience, but we're going to experience it on some level. You see, ever since that day when Adam and Eve back in Eden took the fruit from that forbidden tree and ate that fruit, we've been, we've been experiencing conflict. 
This discord happens person to person. This discord happens person to God. There is an ongoing conflict in this world. So we should not be surprised when we experience it. We shouldn't be even be surprised when we see it take place among those who would claim to know God. And that's the situation we find ourselves uh, seeing as we come to this next text, Luke chapter 13. Let's begin reading this morning in verse 31. Luke says this, At that very hour some Pharisees came and said to him, that is Jesus, Get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, You go tell that fox, Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I finish my course. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be, of, it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. Behold, your house is forsaken. And I tell you, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. As we read through this gospel we have seen over these 13, almost 14 chapters now, that the Pharisees had no love for Jesus, right? And we've seen that. They had no love for Jesus. In fact, if we were to go back a couple chapters to chapter 11, we would see there six woes that Jesus gave to both the Pharisees and their counterparts, the scribes. Those six woes, Luke tells us and describes for us that these men were enemies of our Lord. So much so that it says there that the scribes and Pharisees began to press him and to provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him to catch him in something that he might say. And so we know that these religious leaders were not friends of Jesus. They were enemies of Jesus. And now the Lord, as we think about it, he didn't help himself very much. It seems like times Jesus was trying to get into a fight. He, he didn't try to find common ground. He was not working to build a bridge of better partnership with these religious leaders. But instead what he did is he often warned his disciples to be leery of the Pharisees. Why is that? It's because he believed and he understood that they were hypocrites. He saw them as a danger to the people because what they spoke, what they taught was poisonous and infectious. Here in this new confrontation, Jesus, we need to know contextually, is in the region known as Perea. He's east of the Jordan River. Remember, we have already seen earlier in this chapter that Jesus is journeying to Jerusalem. He's moving from the north up in the Galilee area, the Nazareth area. He's moving southward. His destination is Jerusalem. Herod Antipas is the ruler of this region. History tells us that Herod Antipas, as the ruler under the Romans of this region, was the son of Herod the Great. Herod the Great was the one who tried to kill Jesus in his infancy. So when the Pharisees came to Jesus with what appears here, as we read in verse 31, a friendly warning, Jesus was not fooled. You see, he knew what he was getting into. He, he knew the intentions of these men. He knew what they were trying to do. He was not fooled by their scheme. He knew they wanted to get him back into Judea where they could watch and ultimately trap him. 
And so this suggestion was nothing more than a way to frighten Jesus into the direction of the trap that they had laid for him. Now, we must remember that our Lord was the gentle lamb of God. But think about this. Even a lamb is suspicious of the wolves when the lamb understands and knows that the wolf has no concern for the lamb's safety. So Jesus here knew of the political hit that Herod had taken when he had John the Baptist killed. So just think about what has been happening so far in the history and, and the years that Jesus has had his public ministry. John the Baptist, his very own relative, has been killed by Herod Antipas. The public has not liked this because they revere John as a prophet, of which he was. And so Herod has taken a political hit on his character and leadership. This blemish was not something he wanted to add to. And so he uses the Pharisees to bring a, a little element of doubt, a little element of suspicion, a little bit of fear into Jesus, hoping to push him out of his region and into Judea. And if you think about what the Pharisees are doing here, the political ramifications, they're glad to oblige Herod in this endeavor because it fits their desires. You see, if Jesus moves into Judea, moves closer to Jerusalem, that means he's in the realm of the powerful and the influential council known as the Sanhedrin. The words and the interaction in this passage, you think about it, are somewhat surprising. Now again, we typically think of Jesus as being gentle and meek, right? Jesus is kind. Jesus is loving. Jesus speaks kind words and gracious words to people. And, and that's what we would expect to see of Jesus. We expect his words to be truthful. And his words are truthful here. But what hits us the wrong way is they don't seem to be full of love and encouragement. Right? He says, you go tell that fox. Right? Not very loving. Not very kind. Jesus here is name-calling. Jesus is dropping judgment upon a person that he may not even know that well. And for us, as good Christian parents, what do we teach our kids to do? Don't call people names, right? Don't make judgments before you know what's going on there. And yet Jesus does the very opposite of what we teach our kids to do. Why, well, what's going on here? Now, how and why would Jesus call this man a name? You think, well, if this is a fox, what does that mean? We'll touch, touch on that in just a minute. But he calls him a name. So it's here that we must remember the full deity of Jesus. As sovereign God, he knows the hearts of the people. He knows the hearts and the intention of these Pharisees. He knows the heart and the intention of Herod. So he's also the judge. He understands the ramification of this man's heart. He knows the sin that this man is living in. He knows all of those things. And so... We need to look at this and not see a contradiction, but understand as the sovereign God of heaven, the one who knows all things and will judge all things, he has the right and the authority to say the name that he says and to make the judgment that he makes. Today as human beings, we sit here as finite individuals. And as finite humans, we should not call people names. As finite human beings, we should not prejudge actions because we are not God. Jesus, on the other hand, can and did do so precisely because he has infinite knowledge of everything. In this section, we see his strong reaction toward the Pharisees. But I want you to know this morning, and I'm going to point this out this morning, we also see a tenderness 
a sorrowfulness, a mourning side, a heart toward these people. So I want us to look at Jesus' tempered response. And I want us to find some applications for ourselves as we strive to be holy and we strive to live a, a life that is gospel-centered in a world that is antagonistic to anything that is gospel in nature. So like Jesus this morning, I want us to see that we must always speak faithfully true words, harsh words at times, but to do so with a soft heart. Jesus' response was tempered in three ways. I want you to see these this morning. First of all, we see it was tempered in, as he was bold in confrontation. Jesus was bold in confrontation. I, one of the things I love about Jesus is that he never stepped back from a confrontation. He, he never, when he got into a fight, when he got into a, a situation where it was going to be dicey, he never looked for a way of escape. No, he leaned into that. He was bold in his confrontation. Here we see that Jesus had been teaching on the narrowness of the door into the kingdom of God. We've been working through that over the last few weeks. Jesus had pointed out that familiarity with the kingdom was not sufficient for entry into it, for access into it. He had depicted the harsh judgment that would come to those who rejected the narrow way. He had also said that the Jews' rejection of Christ nullified the privilege of the position that they held as God's people. In response to his teaching, the Pharisees, as always, were incensed. They were outraged at what Jesus would be so audacious to say. And so they sought to remove him and move him toward their trap. Jesus did not shrink back, but instead he boldly confronted them. He confronted them in two ways. I want you to see this this morning. First of all, he was bold when faced with threats. You see, the Pharisees work their plan by issuing a warning, a, a warning of danger, saying, hey, Herod is intending to kill you. You need to leave. Their claim was probably true on some level. I mentioned earlier that, that, that uh, Herod was no friend of Jesus, though he was in all of Jesus. He liked to listen to Jesus. He was intrigued by Jesus, but he was no friend of Jesus. As a ruler, a little king under Caesar there, he was just like everyone else who held a position. He was worried and concerned about losing power, about losing influence, about losing authority. And so he would have seen and did see Jesus as a threat. He's suspicious of him. Most likely, however, the political climate that he had created for himself because of John the Baptist, I don't believe would have allowed such an overt action to actually seek to kill Jesus. Nevertheless, the Lord knew Herod's heart. And you see there in verse 32 what he says. He says, go and tell that fox. Go and tell that fox. Now, I kind of like foxes. They're well, unless it's summertime, they look kind of mangy in the summertime. But this time of year, you see a fox run through the yard. It's nice, and usually its coat's got a real red uh, color to it, and it's getting nice and thick. And, and, you know, foxes are not necessarily dangerous creatures. And so here today in America, we may think of a fox as not much of a put-down or a slander. And yet in the Hebrew mind, this was a common jargon for a person with base cunning and it was used to designate someone as insignificant and worthless. That's what Jesus is saying here about Herod Antipas. So this was an expression of absolute, utter contempt. 
In fact, no other person was treated with such contempt than Herod Antipas. In fact, later in chapter 23, verse 9, when Jesus is standing before Herod, Pilate has pushed him off to Herod because Herod is in Jerusalem. He wants him to kind of weigh in on whether or not Jesus was guilty of what the accusations against him were. Jesus comes before Herod, and Jesus, even though Herod questioned him at length, never said a word. That's interesting. If you're reading through the Bible with us this year, you read that chapter just a, a few days ago, last week. Leon Morris, commenting on this scene, said this. He says, when Jesus has nothing to say to a man, that man's position is hopeless. That tells you everything you need to know about what Jesus thought about Herod Antipas. The Lord's disdain was further revealed in the message the Pharisees were to deliver to Herod. He says, behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow and the third day I finish my course. What is Jesus saying here? He's saying this, I'm going to continue to do what I set out to do, and it doesn't matter who stands in my way. It doesn't matter who's going to try to deter that. It doesn't matter. I'm going to do what I set out to do in my timing, on my schedule, because I am in control. I'm in control, boldly confronting when faced with the threat of a man who could actually have taken his life. Now, we read this, and we also should see in here a grander theological concept. Jesus here is, is relaying the idea that he obviously is in control, but he's going to go to a cross. He's going to be killed. He's going to be buried. He's going to be resurrected. So it's speaking of something grander that we can see as we look back upon the cross. We see the theology there. We see what Jesus was going to accomplish on our behalf. But to King Herod, he's making the point that I'm in control. I'm sovereign here. I'm going to boldly do what the Father has sent me to do. This was nothing other than a sovereign premeditation. You see, Jesus never backed down. He never expressed fear in the face of a threat. And today, like him, we too should never back down or never express fear when threats come. But instead, we should be bold in our confrontation. Now, I want you to... I, I just made a statement... That, that if you don't hear the rest of what I'm going to say, you're going to take up something you shouldn't take up and go be bold in a confrontation in a manner that you shouldn't do. But hear the rest of what I want to say this morning, right? So don't just, pastor told us to take up arms and run. That's not what we're talking about here. That's not what Jesus did either. But he never backed down from a fight. He never backed down from a confrontation. He never backed down in the face of fearful threats upon his life, but instead he stood true. Second thing I want you to see about his boldness in confrontation. He was bold when faced with gospel opportunities. See, Jesus' response to the Pharisees was equally as bold. He's bold to Herod. He's bold to the Pharisees. Look with me at verse 35. He says, Behold, your house is forsaken. What house? the house of Israel, the house of the Pharisees. And I tell you, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus makes this statement because they had rejected his offer of the kingdom. He had declared their house to be forsaken. Now that's not really the gospel presentation we lead with, right? When you're trying to share the gospel with someone at work, you're trying to share the gospel with someone who lives in your neighborhood, maybe it's a family member, we do not teach and we do not advocate that you lead with the idea that you're going to hell. 
But that's what that means. He's speaking to religious leaders here who have said, we don't believe in you, Jesus. We don't believe you're the Messiah, and we're going to war against you because we believe we have a better way. We believe we know a better way than what you're advocating, even though you say you're the narrow way. Jesus says your house is forsaken. There's no more opportunities to hear the gospel. No more opportunities to respond in faith to it. In fact, these men would not see his face again until chapter 19, verse 38, when he comes into Jerusalem. But if you know today, by and large, the Israeli people have not turned to Jesus Christ. And so there could be some eschatological allusions here to the end times when Jesus comes again. But for these men, their house is forsaken. He's bold when faced with gospel opportunities. He was going to tell them the truth, even though they might not have wanted to hear it. His response when confronted was one of boldness, but I want you to see that's not all. It was tempered in a second way. We see him resolute in confrontation. He's bold in confrontation, but he's also resolute in confrontation. Look again at verse 33. He says, nevertheless, I go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. Now this statement doesn't really ring a bell with us. Today and tomorrow, you're going to Jerusalem. What does that mean? We may not get it on the surface of what he's talking about here, but he said something very similar to this already. We go back to chapter 11, verses 47 through 51. There he's speaking to scribes and Pharisees, and he tells them that the nation not only rejected God's loving invitation to his feast, but they've even killed the servants that were sent to bring them the invitation. You see, Jesus knew full well what each day brought and what he faced in Jerusalem. Luke has already clued us in here that Jesus is making his way to Jerusalem. He's journeying to a cross. He's going to a city, the city that is the seat of the religious system that he is a part of, that he is the offspring of, the the, the genesis of our faith itself. He's going to a city that he says here kills the prophets. Historically, that's what they're known for. And that's where he's headed. As the greatest of all prophets, as the Messiah who was to give his life on behalf of humanity, he's headed to the city where the people are awaiting to kill him. And so what he says in this is if Herod wants to kill me or anyone else wants to kill me, they better get to Jerusalem because that's where I'm sovereignly headed. That's where I'm going to die. This morning, I want us to put ourselves in Jesus' sandals for just a moment. I want you to think about what's going on in the life and the ministry of Jesus. I want you to think about what's going on in his mind and in his heart. Every day brought him a step closer to the cross that awaited him. I want you to think about that. Is there anything crueler than forcing a criminal to move a foot closer each day to the gallows that's been built for him? That's what Jesus is doing here. Every single day, he's moving closer to the cross. Every single day, those thoughts are looming on the horizon, and they're getting a little closer. They're getting a little closer. The cruelty that he would have experienced through that. Now, in America, we have laws that prohibit cruel and unusual punishment. Maybe you're familiar with the Eighth Eighth Amendment to the Constitution that states this. Excessive bail shall not be required, nor excessive 
fines imposed, nor cruel and unusual punishments inflicted. See, the thoughts about a cruel and unusual death were Jesus' daily experience as he resolutely chose to go to Jerusalem. That's where his face was pointed toward. That's where his direction and his heading was pointing toward. He was resolutely committed to the confrontation that he would experience there. We need to be resolute in our own confrontation. We need to follow Jesus' example. So with the cross on the horizon, no confrontation would hinder his resolve. I wonder this morning, can we say that of ourselves? How resolute are you in confrontation when questioned or when someone threatens you because of your stance on the gospel? How many of us are so resolute in our commitment to Jesus Christ that we're willing to stand and tell people that Jesus is the only way for them? That we're willing to say that he can give them life and life abundantly and that we're willing to open our mouths and to speak that? How many of us are resolute in our convictions? That we will stand for what's right and what's good, what's biblical and what's sound. How many of us, I look around our nation today and I look at what's happening in our country today and I, I just wonder, where are we as the church? Why is our culture, our society going to hell in a handbasket? It's got to be because we as the church no longer are resolved to stand in the face of conflict. No longer willing to stand and to say, this is truth. That is error. We must go with truth. This is right. That is wrong. We must stick with that which is right. Why are we so silent today? Why are we so quiet today? Why are we sitting on our hands and not taking the word of God and living it in a community and a culture? Jesus was resolute in the face of confrontation. For us as believers, man, we dare not look for a fight, but we should always be ready to give an account for the hope that we have. There's a third way Jesus was tempered. We see that he was sorrowful in confrontation. Now, I said earlier, be careful, don't take what I said first and run just with that. You see, this message is called tempered. Jesus wasn't just blowing off steam. Jesus wasn't just uh, fierce and, and a consuming fire of which the Bible tells us that God is a consuming fire and his judgment is wrathful and his judgment is just and he could very well if he chose and be justified in doing so vanquish every single person that's ever lived and cause us to be crispy critters because we deserve it but his wrath his judgment his conflict is always tempered here he is sorrowful look at verse 34 he laments O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who were sent to it. How often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. You see the heart of Jesus here? He expressed his deep desire for his people with this incredible, magnificent image of a bird gathering her hens under her wings. This is a picture, this is an image in Scripture that is a favorite one. We see it in Deuteronomy 32. We see it throughout the Psalms. The image of being tucked under the wings of Jesus expresses to us today the, the idea of sustenance and warmth and security where believers are to find those things in Him. That's what Jesus wants to do for us. 
And if we know Jesus is the Lord and Savior, we're under his wing. We're in the midst of that sustenance. We're in the embrace that is warm and caring and, and, and full of life. But those who are outside of Jesus, those who stand outside his embrace, he still has the desire to bring them under the fold. 2 Peter 3.9 still says this, that he wishes that none should perish, but that all should come to repentance and faith. That's the heart of Jesus. That's the desire of the Lord Jesus. Herod and the Pharisees have confronted and threatened the Lord. They've done their very best to frighten him into their trap, stressing terrible danger that he was under there in Perea. Jesus, however, expressed to them that it was they who were actually in danger. You see, Jesus never got scared. Jesus never rang or, 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 or rung. What do you I don't know what the word you're saying here? I'm losing my mind here. He, he never uh, grabbed his hands and, and, and twiddled them. He, he never wondered, is this the day I'm going to die? No, he knew the day that he would die. He knew what came in the future for him. He knew all of that. He never shrunk back in fear. But instead, with deep sorrow, he longed to embrace the very people that would kill him on a cross. Jesus here expressed great sorrow over the sinful. He expressed sorrowful, sorrowness over the lost condition of the people who had rejected him. So when confronted by people who wanted to see him dead, his response was a tempered sorrow toward their souls. Today is we, as Christians, seek to live our faith out in a world that is increasingly hostile toward it. As we seek to live out the gospel around a people who want nothing to do with it, our response to them must also be tempered. It must not be this idea that we are at war with them in the sense that we're going to take up arms and march against them. That's what the Bible would never lead us to do. But instead, as followers of Jesus, we with sorrowful hearts, hearts of mourning, hearts of grief, hearts that are broken over the condition of people, we stand boldly in the face of their threats and their condemnations, and we point them to Jesus. And with the heart of Jesus, we say in, the, in essence, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills its prophets, how I wish you would come to the prophet. How I wish you would come to the embrace of the Savior. May we never lose sight of the spiritual ramifications of a person's rejection of Jesus. Today, we should never think that an individual's rejection of God's truth has no ramifications for them. It does. You see, Ephesians 2 is still true today. That we in our sin are dead to God, cut off, lifeless, headed to a devil's hell. It's only Ephesians 2.4 that gives us the ability to be outside of the condemnation that we deserve. Because Paul goes on to say, all these bad things are happening in your life because you are a sinful human being. You're born into this nature, but it's God who in, who's rich in mercy. And then he goes on to explain what Jesus has done for us. So as we understand that people have rejected God, may we never be comfortable with their rejection of God. But instead, may we have hearts that are broken and to see them as dead, lost individuals in need of a Savior, Jesus Christ.
Now, I understand the battle can and is hard. I understand that the conflict is, is draining. It seems like we are losing everything today. It seems like everything in society is changing, and it's not just changing at the slow pace that we could see in history. You see, things have always been changing, and I don't believe today's as worse as it's ever been. I think throughout time, there has been moments, there's been seasons of, of history where they have seen, people in the past have seen very similar things that we see today, but it just took longer for those transitions to happen. Today, everything seems to be happening overnight. I mean, everything in this, our culture changes at such rapid paces, and so we have seen our culture literally deteriorate in just two generations. Go back to the 50s and the 40s of the previous century, this was a strong Judeo-Christian type of ethic in our nation. There was a strong understanding and faith into the gospel. But then we get to the generation of the 60s and the generation of the early 2000s, and everything has changed so quickly. And we're left wondering sometimes, what are we to do with all of this? Man, I just hope Jesus comes back soon. I just hope Jesus comes back and, 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 and frees me from all of this. That is a good sentiment, and we all have that, but that is a passive approach to the Christian life. That's a passive approach that says, I just want to be delivered from this, when Jesus never said, Father, deliver me from this. Even in the midst of the garden there, as he's awaiting the cross in just a matter of hours, Jesus does ask, Father, if there's any other way, may this cup pass from me. But he never said, I don't want to do that or I'm not going to do that. So we got to live boldly. We got to live resolutely. We got to live sorrowfully, mourning over the sins of the culture in which we live. Trusting in Jesus, leaning into Jesus, and presenting Jesus to everyone around us. So we dare not take up arms. We dare not lose our cool. We dare not do something that would cause our testimony to be in jeopardy, that we would bring harsh uh, 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 ridicule to the name of Jesus Christ, but instead, let's remember how Jesus hurt for people, and let's us too hurt for people. As we watch our society move further and further away from the Judeo-Christian ethic and become antagonistic toward followers of Jesus, like Jesus, let's refuse to allow our hearts to become hardened toward those who would throw stones at us. Jesus' words here are not words of hardness of heart, even as he says, you tell that fox, his heart broke for him. His heart broke for the Pharisees. His heart breaks for us today, sitting in this room, those in our culture who have yet to say yes to Jesus Christ. And so for us, may God's divine love for people temper our response. Today we need, we must have a tempered response, a, a response that holds to the truth of God's word and a response that holds to the heart of the Lord Jesus. Both need to be equally held in tandem. I love what Billy Graham once said. He said, hot heads and cold hearts never solved anything. And today that's true as it's ever been. A hot head and a cold heart will never solve the problems in our culture. Conflict is natural. It is normal. It's part of living in this fallen world. As we watch the culture of America erode before our eyes, we feel, hey, listen, 
I feel it too. We feel a range of emotions. Why is this happening? Can you not see the ramifications for this? I was asked earlier this week, this past week, how and why I feel so sure about certain societal issues. And my response was, the answer's in the Bible. The answer's in the Bible. Oh, how do I feel so certain about this issue or that issue when there's such, there's such wavering opinion within the culture? How can I be so sure? How can I be so sure that I'm right and, and by doing say or saying such, I'm alienating other people because I'm claiming this, this objective truth on an issue. The reason I can do that, the reason you can do that is because it's not my opinion about whatever it is. It's the word of God. So I'm going to be resolved in that. I'm going to be bold in that. I'm going to lead from that standpoint. But at the same time, there has to be a tempered love that takes the opinions of others who disagree with my opinion, and I'm going to show them the truth, and I'm going to argue the truth, and I'm going to do so with great fierceness from the standpoint of I'm not backing down, but I'm lovingly not going to push you either. At least I'm not going to push you from I must win at all costs, but I'm going to lovingly point you to the Lord Jesus Christ and the truth found in his word. Amen. As a church, may we do the same. We feel the range of emotions, but our trust must firmly be in God as we offered a tempered response. If Jesus was persecuted in mind, think about this, then we should expect nothing less in our own lives. We should expect confrontations on various levels. In fact, in every case like Jesus, let's be bold, let's be resolute, let's be sorrowful as we keep our eyes on the Lord and to carry out his mission. Church, uh, this is not a call to arms type of message. I hope this message this morning is it's just to help you have your eyes open just a little bit more and to see what's going on in our culture. Some of you, I, 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 I hear you say this at times, man, I, I don't even watch the news. It's just bad. I, I get that. Here's what we can't do. Stick our heads in the sand and just do our own thing. I'm just going to live my life. I'm just going to take care of me and my own. I'm just going to kind of fend for myself. I'm not going to get caught up into the broader scheme or, or, or the things that's happening in the world. There's an element. There, there's, a, there, there's a fraction of that that's true. We should not be so enraptured in everything that's happening that that consumes everything that we think about. There needs to be some balance there, but if we stick our heads in the sand and we just care about what's three feet around us, what good are we to the rest of culture? What good are we? But instead, I think there needs to be a strong balance. Well, I understand times in which I live. I understand the word of God, and I can answer the questions of culture and the things happening in the times today with great resolve with great boldness and with a heart that breaks for people. Man, we need to have hearts that break. This morning in a small group, a question was asked something like this, like what should be our response to things? What should be our response to things? Our response should be knowledge, conviction, and a heart that beats for people. Hearts that beats for people. Let's pray this morning. Father, as we think about 
the day and an age in which we live. Maybe I'm the only one in the room that can get so caught up in that. And you just wonder, man, who's in control anymore? I think that most of us feel that way at times. It's in those moments, Lord, that I pray that we just lean back on what we know to be true, and that is you're in control. I love how Jesus here, in response to this threat, just looks him in the face and says, you tell that guy, I do what I'm going to do today, and I'm going to do it tomorrow, and I'm going to do it the third day. In essence, I'm in control. It's my timetable. Nothing's going to happen without my say-so. And Lord, as we look out at the scope of the age in which we live, may that bring a sense of assurance, a sense of confidence, a sense of, of um, knowledge that, that, that you're still in control. Lord, we need that today. We need that when things seem to be spinning out of control at, a, at an excessive pace, you are still in control. Lord, you... The throne you were sitting on 2,000 years ago is still the same throne you're sitting on today. You've not changed one bit. We bless you for that today. Lord, most of us in this room, most people listening to us online today are followers of Jesus Christ. And we wrestle with this every single day. May we sense your sovereign hand in everything. And Lord, as we do that... I pray that our response is always tempered, holding truth and holding love. Knowing the word of God, knowing the truth of God, knowing the, 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 the commands of God and what's right and what's wrong, but that's tempered with a deep heart and a deep desire and a deep love for people to see them come to know the truth, to come to know Jesus that we know. Lord, help us to do that. I pray for those in this room, those listening who have yet themselves to embrace Jesus as Lord and Savior. Lord, we're going to move into a time of response in just a moment. And I pray for believers. I pray for those who are struggling, those who are just at times emotionally, they're a wreck because they feel like everything is spinning out of control and they don't know the east is from the west. Lord, this morning, I pray that you would center them one more time. Bring balance into their life. Lord, may they respond today in faith. Trusting you, trusting your word, resting in you. Father, I pray for those who are outside of Jesus, who in all theological parameters are in the same position as Herod and these Pharisees in the text. The house is cut off, but it doesn't have to always be cut off. God, I pray that you draw people to yourself this morning. We thank you for that invitation that's always available. May we respond to it today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you stay? We trust that you and your family have been encouraged and blessed today. If you have just made a decision to follow Jesus, or if you would like to pray with someone, or even if you want to know more about our church, please contact our church office or send us an email. We are looking forward to seeing you next week here in person or online. See you then.